Hey, Cole, are you ready to be seduced by fear? I mean, based on the number of times I've hooked up with men I didn't know, you would assume that that was something I was into. Well, we'll actually get to that in a little bit, because this week I'm doing a 2009 cult classic horror movie with the title of a porn movie, Jennifer's Body. I've actually heard of this one. Welcome to Second to Die, horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And this week, everybody, thanks for listening to us yet again. As I said, I'm doing a movie that I feel like a lot of people have heard of, but not that many people that I know have seen, weirdly enough. But it is a film called Jennifer's Body. Revenge has a killer body. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Tamara. <laughs> it's actually a pretty valid comparison because they're both high school movies. And now I'm trying to think, which one did I like better? And I don't really know the answer to that. This movie has some good lines in it. I'll definitely tell you what they are. And at their base level, they're kind of, it's a similar story, but uh, different enough. Anyways, this one came out in 2009. It was written by Diablo Cody, who had done Juno. She's- I'm sorry. Diablo. Yeah. That's she's actually very well known. She's done a few things. She did Juno. I think she also did the United States of Terra. Her name is a little strange. I don't know if that's her real name. I've actually never looked it up. I'm just assuming it is. Okay. And it was directed by Karen Kusama. Anyway, the title of the movie is a reference to a song by the same name of the alternative rock band Hole. And their album, it was on their album Live Through This, which came out in 1994, which was, as I've even mentioned before, my fucking jam in high school. I love that album. It is so good. I used to play it all the time in my car on my CD player because I'm old. You had a CD player in your car back then? Yeah. It was one of those ones that you push the button and the face came off of it as an anti-theft thing. You don't remember those? Do you not know what I'm talking about? I have literally no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> it was <laughs> so okay. Let me do like quick info, like info dump about my family. We are like frugal to a fault, and my parents drove cars until like the car that my mom drove when I was growing up literally died in the middle of a busy intersection, and it had been dying for months. And my mom was like, "It's not dead yet." So we went from like a Lincoln Town car that was like a land yacht with a cassette player in it Hmm. to a new car in like the mid 2000s for my mom. If that gives you any indication of how like big of a tech jump what I saw the inside of cars was. Now, that makes sense. So in the this is real quick in the late 90s. People were, I guess, like obsessed about the fact that people were stealing car stereos out of cars. So they installed these like stereos and CD players that the face of it with all like the buttons and stuff would come off of it. It was removable. Like you hit a button and the whole thing came off and you could like put it in your purse or your carry on or whatever so that it would decentivize people to steal it because they would be stealing a radio without the front panel apart. Interesting. Okay, sure. Yeah, it was fine until 
you just got too bored and you just left it on and then people stole the radio anyways, which is exactly what happened to me when I, it, I was at work one day in New Orleans. I'd been living here for maybe a year working and right off St. Charles, honestly, um, somebody broke into my car and stole my radio out of the car and then also stole my entire binder of CDs because, again, this is back when people use CDs. But the real obnoxious part about it is most of these CDs were like burned CDs like that I had just downloaded from the internet. So they don't even have, they didn't even have value. So, and that person, I highly doubt that that person and I had the same music taste, but you never know. That's a strong possibility. Not strong. It's a weak possibility. Anyways, I digress. Anyways, live through this by whole great album. Check it out if you want. So, okay. Diablo Cody basically made this or wrote this film. She said she wanted the film to speak to female empowerment and explore the complex relationship between best friends. Did this happen in this movie? I don't know. Let's see. That sounds like a no. (laughs) Well, no, it kind of does. If by complex relationship, you mean... (laughs) I can't do it without like the visual, but... Is there sapphic yearning? It's not sapphic yearning. It's just like sapphic spit swabbing. But anyways, we'll get to all that. So, okay, the film did not perform exceptionally well at the box office. In fact, it did very poorly, actually. But later and now has a little bit more of like this kind of feminist cult classic following to it. According to Diablo Cody, she she blames the marketing department, saying that the film was marketed all wrong. She actually got into an argument with executives that said that they wanted to market the film to boys who like Megan Fox. Megan Fox plays Jennifer in this movie. I didn't know that much. And she said, that's, or they said, the executive said, that's who's going to see it. And Cody was like, no, the movie is for girls. That's the audience that we need to attempt to reach. But the executives did not do that. And so they did market it as this, like, Megan Fox is sexy, go look at her in this horror movie. And it didn't do well. So, as I said, cast. Jennifer, she's played by Megan Fox from... I don't know, from the news. People know her. She's in Transformers. And then also, her best friend, the name is Anita Lesnicki, but they call her Needy. That's her nickname. Is played by the great Amanda Seyfried. Oh, my God. I love her so much. I loved her in Mean Girls. I loved her in Les Mis. I loved her in Everything in Between, which isn't a movie. I literally mean, like, I love everything she does. Yeah. Kind of an icon, really. For people who... Don't know or thinking, wait, which one is she? She plays Karen in Mean Girls. And then I can tell the weather (laughs) with my breasts. (laughs) She's also responsible for the, if you're from Africa, why aren't you black? And also the, you have your cousins and then your first cousins. (laughs) I say, uh, Cole and I quote Mean Girls to each other on at least a weekly basis. Like at least, right? Yes. I mean, for me, it's that and The Devil Wears Prada. I usually quote one of the two at least once per day. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I, like, get achy. (laughs) Also, those are the only two people I'm really going to harp on. But I will say that there there are a couple cameos in this. And one of the cameos is this very, very insignificant character, Officer Roman Duda. But he is played by the lovely, and at the time very, very young, Chris Pratt. Isn't he, like, super religious, though? Chris Pratt? I don't know. He plays Star-Lord and stuff. Yeah. Isn't he a part of that church that, like, thinks gays are bad? 
I don't know. It's hard to know what he's thinking because I'm usually just watching him on mute. Anyway, let's just get to this movie. I actually am going to talk about a good amount of this movie. Some of it's good. Some of it's whatever. There, This movie, it's funny because it's 2009. This movie looks like it. Like there's a huge emo element to all of this. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. So it opens up with Jennifer played by Megan Fox in bed, and then her friend Needy, or Anita, whatever, appears outside the window, and you get this narration by Needy, and the first line of the movie is, hell is a teenage girl, which already kind of sounds like emo and like, right up my alley. Oh boy. So it turns out that Needy is in some sort of psychiatric correctional facility situation. She's not super chill about it. She ends up kicking a doctor in the face for recommending that she eat more breakfast. And you kind of get this sense that she's, like, troubled. Then it flashes back to the start, like a lot of movies do. Like, I don't like them when they do that, but they do that. And the her character, and I think they do that because she's, like, crazy and violent, but then her character in the actual movie is, like, mousy and, you know, nerdy. And, in fact, as I mentioned when I was watching it, they put her in glasses to make her look kind of mousy and nerdy. But when she's in the facility, I actually don't think she has glasses on. So, okay, they're all from this town called Devil's Kettle. It's named after this waterfall situation. I'm not going to say any more about that. It's dumb. We learn that Needy and Jennifer are best friends. They go to school together. They grew up together. And they're going to go see a music show that Jennifer learned about on MySpace. Oh, I never even had one of those. I 100% had one. I know. And I used to... Do like a vlog on it when I was living in Spain. I would not like a daily thing, but like quite regularly would like put these little like, what am I doing today things? And like I was into it. I was like changing the music on around, like changing my top friends. You know, it it was everything. If you don't know what MySpace is, you should Google it. It was a trip. If you don't know what MySpace is, I will key your fucking car. (laughs) If you are that young. (laughs) I mean, yeah. So, okay, so we get the usual setup for high school and blah, blah, blah. It's about what you would expect for high school at that time. I was like, Jennifer keeps referring to guys as salty, which I didn't understand at first. And Needy is like talking to her boyfriend and is like, oh, it means beautiful or hot. And that I found very confusing because salty in Internet speak today means like angry or mad. Like, why are you salty about it? So I was like, not super into that. And then also... Needy at one point is talking about her and Jennifer about how they're BFFs and she they wear these like matching necklaces. But instead of saying BFFs, she says we're biffs. And I was like, Ugh. I think I've heard that before, but I think I blocked it out. I don't like it. I'm glad that that isn't a thing anymore. So, OK, I need to I need to move on. I have too much to cover this movie. They go end up going to the and this is like literally the first parts of it. They end up going to the music show, which is at this local bar, and Jennifer is, like, really into the lead singer of the band, played by Adam Brody, if you know who that is. He's on the OC. Key minus 2009. So this is, like, an emo band. And, like, they're wearing eyeliner and stuff. And the band members seem really interested in Jennifer because they think she's a virgin. And Needy overhears them and basically tells Jennifer they only want her because she's a virgin. And she's like, what? I'm not even a backdoor virgin. But Me neither, girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah not for some time that is a very pivotal part in this she ends up telling the band members that she is a virgin though because she's into them and she wants them to 
you know, be indoor. And virginity is made up anyway. So, like, who fuck cares? Like, tell them if they if they want a virgin, tell them you're a virgin. Who cares? Virginity is a social construct. Yes. So, at the end of the day, the bar ends up burning down during the performance. And a bunch of people get killed. And Anita and Jennifer escape. And the band is like, we should get out of here. Jennifer, come with us in our van. And she's like, okay. And Anita is like, don't get into that van, girl. Did it have free candy on the side? No, emo people don't eat candy. But like, don't get into that van. First of all, they eat warheads. Second of all, (laughs) keep going. So she does go into the van. And then the next thing you know, Jennifer turns up at Needy's house, but she's covered in blood and smiling and being really creepy. And then she goes to to, uh, Needy's fridge and grabs this rotisserie chicken out and starts like eating it in this really gross way. And then she vomits this black liquid all over the floor that kind of like moves on its own for a second and gets all spiky and then like melts back down into a pool. And Edie is like, this doesn't seem right. So then she checks Jennifer's pulse. And I guess she doesn't have one because she gets a little bit weird and starts to get kind of sus about Jennifer and the whole situation right now. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Yeah. This, for the record, is why you do not hang out with emo bands. It will never end well for you. So the next day, Jennifer shows up to school and she's acting all normal. And she's cleaned off. She's not covered in blood anymore. So, all right. I figured. Yeah, we're going to cut to the good stuff now. That's the that's the setup you need to know. Something's going on with Jennifer. What's up with Jennifer? I don't know. Maybe she's going to eat people. So the first person that she eats is a high school. Oh, you are serious. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, Jennifer goes to console this football player named Jonas. He lost his best friend, Craig, in the fire. I know it's weird because he starts talking about being like all heartbroken about it because they were such good friends. Okay. Anyway, Jennifer lures him to the woods with her secret power, her secret weapon, her secret weapon, her sexuality. And she starts to give him a handjob because this is, I don't know that. I'm sorry. I didn't realize that this movie takes place in the second grade. Yeah, I mean, who the fuck gives handjobs anymore? So then it gets a little weird because she's giving him a handjob and asking if he misses Craig. And he's like, um, yes. <laughs> it's it's a weird scene, but it's kind of interestingly done. Yes, but Craig gave better handjobs. The, the, uh, the case, we do not give handjobs. No, we don't. That's like, if I wanted to give a handjob, I'll just go by myself. You know what I'm saying? Like... So then Jennifer is like, well, you're going to see him real soon. And then she pushes him against a tree. Her jaw kind of unhinges in this like demon-y type way. And she takes a bite out of him. So she eats him. All right. So then Jennifer, after that happens, Jennifer is kind of just like acting a little bit normal. She calls Needy and they're talking on the phone. And then Needy has to put her on hold because her boyfriend is calling her. So what's a girl on hold to do when she's got nothing else to do? Well, she's taking a lighter and burning the tip of her tongue and watching it just, like, heal. It's weird. Don't do that. That's also, like, the only part of this movie that I know about, though. Oh, really? I didn't actually know about that. I think it's in the trailer, though. Is the, like... Yeah, she's burning the tip of her tongue. Like, the face she makes. God, that just, like... I don't like that because... When you burn your tongue, it sucks. And it sucks for a long time. And the tip of your tongue is where you taste sweet stuff. So she will not be able to taste sweet things anymore. Thankfully, human flesh is savory. I don't know. You're pretty sweet. 
gentle listener. <laughs> this is a lie. <laughs> okay, so fast forward. The emo kid in school, Colin, who looks basically exactly what you would think of if I said the emo kid. He's got a lip ring. He wears eyeliner. He asks Jennifer out. She decides to invite him to her place. She gives him an address, but it's not her house. It's this like abandoned, boarded up house. He pulls up to it and is like, this seems weird, but still gets out and goes inside and has to like, it's like boarded up and he still goes inside and is like, Jennifer, hello. And look, we've all had our time where we've pulled up to the house of a hookup and it's like, is this too sketchy for me? But this is, I think, more than that. And so I find him a little bit suspicious for going inside. But he's also a hormonal teenager and Megan Fox is quite hot. So. I guess that's what it is. And she ends up being there. He finds this room filled with filled with candles. It's like she's setting the romantic scene. She is setting a scene for a sacrifice. That's what all those candles are for, girl. Ambiance. So then she's there. And she... <laughs> the best part about it is she tells Colin that she's been sending him signals all year. And that he gives her such a, quote, wetty. And I think that might be my new favorite term for that whole situation. No, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Well, I don't have those parts, so I wouldn't be able to get a wedding, but I'm into that. And I think that if you do have those parts and you're listening, I think we need to make that. Because, you know, the other thing that people had said before is cloner, you know, like clip boner. But yeah. I think wedding is better. Anyways. Oh, God. Then she disembowels them with her teeth. Like you do when you're horny. Mm. Well, no. I've rearranged some bowels. Anyway, oh, so Jennifer cleans up and goes over to Needy's house. And then um, pretty much out of the blue, they start making out like a lot. And then Needy remembers that Jennifer eats people and is like, what the fuck is happening right now? And really, it's like, I don't know, a lesbian scene. Seems pretty self-explanatory. So then Jennifer takes the time to explain what happened. And this is where we get her backstory about what happened after she got into the van. Ooh. So. To sum it up, she basically was like, the emo band were Satan worshippers, and they took her out to that waterfall, tied her up, and were preparing her as a virgin sacrifice, and they did end up killing her. They, like, stabbed her in the stomach and killed her because they thought she was a virgin, but she's not, or she wasn't, so things kind of ended up going wrong, and now she's basically invincible and is she feels really good as long as she, quote, stays full. Okay. So now that Needy knows the backstory, what's a girl to do to figure out how to stop Jennifer? Well, she goes to her local library. Yay! And she, <laughs> and she goes to the occult section and figures out exactly what's going on, which seems to be very easy, which doesn't seem right, because I'm pretty sure her occult section is really going to just teach her how to use, like, meant to empower chakras and crystals and stuff but instead she figures out that jennifer is a demon and the problem is that when she was sacrificed as a virgin but not a virgin a demon inhabited her soul that requires human flesh to sustain itself she came across this information very easily almost like it's a movie i was about to say i have answered far less complicated reference questions that took a lot more time (laughs) yeah so She's kind of uh, explaining this to somebody, and she's basically like, uh, to her boyfriend, I think, and she's like, that's why she's all pretty and glowy when she eats somebody, but then when she's hungry, she's like, really ugly, and she goes, I mean, like, ugly for her. I was about to say. Yeah. All right. 
So, let's get towards the end of the movie. And you couldn't really have a high school movie without a high school dance scene. So, it was a high school dance. And the band that's performing is the band that sacrificed Jennifer. That's not really relevant to the scene. I thought it would be, but it's not. So, long story short, Jennifer is now trying to eat Needy's boyfriend. She lures him to this, like, abandoned underground pool at their high school, which doesn't 100% make sense, but we're just going to move past that. She ends up taking a bite out of Needy's boyfriend's neck. Needy shows up to the rescue and, like, fights Jennifer off. She pepper sprays Jennifer, who then vomits all black stuff all over them, then starts levitating, and her boyfriend is like, oh, my God, she can fly, and Needy is like... She's just hovering. It is not that impressive. <laughs> and Jennifer is like, do you have to undermine everything I do? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Basically, then Needy calls Jennifer insecure. And Jennifer is like, how could I be insecure? I was the snowflake queen. And Needy is like, yeah, two years ago when you were socially relevant and didn't need laxatives to stay skinny. Which is like, burn, girl. Yikes. Get that girl some lidocaine because that burn is going to stay a while. Anyways. So then Jennifer is like super pissed off about that and is like, I'm going to eat your soul and shit it out. And Needy is like, you only eat boys. And then Jennifer goes, I go both ways. We know. Y'all already (laughs) made out. No one is shocked. Yeah. So then Needy's boyfriend appears and stabs Jennifer with this like metal pole thing he picked up. So then Jennifer, like, leaves. She kind of, like, runs away, sort of. But Needy's boyfriend, unfortunately, dies from the bite he had sustained. Like you do when a chunk of your neck is bitten out. Yeah. There is... So when they're making out before, too, there was kind of, like, a little bit more into the conversation. They kind of talked about playing boyfriend and girlfriend like they used to when they were younger. And there was definitely some, like, a lot of sexual tensionness between the two of them. It was fine, though. Anyway, so after the boyfriend dies... Needy loses her cool. Jennifer is back at home in her bed, and Needy crashes through her window and attacks her. Needy pulls out a giant box cutter and, like, extends the blade all the way out and is like, you know what this is for? It's for cutting boxes, which I think was supposed to be an insult. Or, like, a vagina joke. Yeah, but she's, like, stabbing it at, like, her face. Because she, oh, I don't know if I told, did I tell, did I, mm, did I even mention this? She finds out in her research that to kill these types of demons, you have to stab them in the heart. I don't think I said that. No, you okay. didn't. So that's what she's going for, stabbing in the heart. So she says that, and Jennifer goes, do you buy all your murder weapons at Home Depot? God, you're butch. Some of these one-liners are not... <laughs> They're delivered not pretty well. They're delivered pretty well. The movie was not as quippy as I would like like it to have been, and that I'll mention it a little bit at the end. So, okay. They scuffle a little bit. Ultimately, Needy stabs Jennifer through the heart with the box cutter. Then Jennifer's mom walks in and Needy is literally like box cutter deep in her daughter and is like, she looks over and then pulls the box cutter out and that goes about how you would expect it to go. Yeah, not well. No. So then we flash back to the beginning of the movie. And so that's kind of like why she was in that psychiatric facility. But then we also learn through narration that apparently if you're bitten by a demon and survive, which Needy was bitten during that encounter, sometimes you absorb some of the abilities. Then we see that Needy is like levitating a little bit and then she uses her new like demon power to escape. She kind of punches out the window and escapes the facility. She's walking on the road. She hitches a ride from a motorist 
who happens to be also a cameo. It's uh, the guy's played by Lance Henriksen. He is the guy from Pumpkinhead and Aliens and oh, okay, lo- lots of horror stuff. So that was kind of a cool cameo. But basically, she's like, I need to go east. I'm following a rock band. And the guy's like, must be one hell of a group. And she's like, tonight's going to be their last show. Then the end credits start. And the end credits are a photo montage of the band kind of like parting it up in a hotel room. And then they answer the door. And there's like, then you see a slash of blood. And then it's scenes of them, photos of them like all dead. Then a surveillance photo montage of like needy leaving like she obviously went and killed the band and all of this is happening to the song violet by hole from the same album also an amazing song so it was cool they and so that's like the end end of the movie why are you laughing honestly i'm just laughing about a band named hole yeah i i really do like them i mean i have every single one of their albums and i think they're all great so that's that guess what we'll be listening to (laughs) Guess what we'll be listening to while we cook dinner after we're done recording. Yeah. All right. Final thoughts. Is this movie good? Yes. Is this movie amazing? Um, I do not think so. I see why people kind of latch onto it. It has its moments, but it is not. It's not as like addictive as I would think. And I don't think it has the rewatchability that is necessary to be like a real cult film. The one-liners, like, you compare it to, just because it was last week, like, Happy Death Day, that movie was just, like, filled with one-liners that really landed. This movie has a couple of them. Yeah. But Megan Fox is actually fine in it. I will say that. Is this... Okay. The next thing, and one of the last things. Does this movie hit with the female empowerment theme? Mm, I don't know. Like, I get that, like, the villain in it... Both the villain and kind of the sort of heroine are both female characters so i do like that and she kind of overpowers guys she uses her sexuality which i don't i don't know it's like whatever i did like that i I thought that the theme of like the virgin sacrifice gone wrong was kind of fresh i did i did appreciate that for a minute in the movie i thought that nothing was going to happen with the band members because they performed at the high school so i was thinking okay jennifer's gonna go kill them but that didn't happen. Then I was like, nothing's going to happen to this band. That's kind of lame. But then they did die in the end. So I was at least happy with that. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I think it was successful in what she wanted to do. She wanted to kind of explore the relationship between best friends. They did. It did, it did end up being like real sexual. I don't think that's always the dynamic. No. But maybe with some people it is. They're just gal pals. Two real good friends. <laughs> I mean, they were like real good friends. Real close. Just real good friends. Polishing each other's doorbells and shit. That escalated. <laughs> Anyways, so that so that's basically it. Jennifer's Body. It was okay. I'm happy I watched it because it was a movie I think I had always meant to watch because people reference it all the time. It was not at all what I thought it was going to be, though. I thought it was something completely different. I don't know what I thought it was going to be, but it wasn't this. Anyways, that's that. Now, tell me what you're going to talk about. Okay, Peaches, I've got a big change for you today. So I was getting a little burned out on the vintage horror. It's a lot of misogyny and toxic masculinity to be taking in on a daily basis. And obviously, I started back with some more modern horror with last week when I did The Resurrectionist. But then I noticed that I had fallen prey to the fact that horror is, or at least was, 
see above vintage horror spree, a male dominated field and that I haven't done a lady author in a really long time, like an embarrassingly long time, like January 2nd. Oh, yeah. And we do try to be inclusive. We do. Anyway, that's why this week I'm going to be talking to you about Wilder Girls by Rory Power. So it came out in 2019 and it was all over Instagram. I mean, like all over it. Marketing and like bookstagram influencers and stuff like pictures of this book were everywhere. And for a very good reason, because the cover is amazing. It's pretty cool. I can't tell if the head is being chopped up or if that's like paint, like uh, like war paint. It's like unraveling. Okay. That's kind of what it looks like. It's just hard for my, I don't know, my eyes. Yeah. Well, the artwork was done by Turkish artist. Oh, boy. I don't want to mispronounce this man's name, but I tried to find pronunciation and I couldn't find it. Akyut, A-K-Y-U-T. I dog do. A-Y-D-O-G-D-U. I probably very much so butchered it and I am so sorry. But all of his work is seriously breathtaking and it all kind of goes along the same themes as this cover like it's mostly people's faces with stuff kind of going on because what i haven't even actually said is like it's like a girl's face like like shoulders up and basically her face and neck are unraveling and plants are growing out of the gaps but seriously gentle listener head to our instagram or just like Google it. This isn't even a plug for our social media. I just want you to see this cover if you haven't. It's really cool. But let's have a look at the blurb super fast so we can dive on in. It's been 18 months since the Raxter School for Girls was put under quarantine. Since the Tox, Tox is in, it's capitalized, that's what they're calling it, hit and pulled Hetty's life from under her. It started slow. First, the teachers died one by one. Then it began to infect the students, turning their bodies strange and foreign. Now, cut off from the rest of the world and left to fend for themselves on their island home, the girls don't dare wander outside the school's fence, where the tox has made the woods wild and dangerous. They wait for the cure that they were promised as the tox seeps into everything. But when Byatt goes missing, Hetty will do anything to find her even if it means breaking quarantine and braving the horrors that lie beyond the fence. And when she does, Hetty learns that there's more to their story and their life at Raxter than she could have ever thought true. Hmm. Quarantine horror. How fitting. Uh, Yeah. So, obviously, that's like literally the next point. This book is about an epidemic and quarantine. So I feel like it's pretty understandable that I waited a hot minute to read it. (laughs) It was just a little too real. Just a little. Also, just a heads up, because it is so recent, I'm not going to give away the ending or big spoilers. I am going to talk about some plot points, though. So gentle listener, if you really want to read it fresh, go ahead and do so. It's a quick read. It's YA. I'll still be here when you get back. So our story centers around three girls who share a dorm room at this school, which is on like an island off the coast of Maine. Their names are Reese, Byatt, B-Y-A-T-T, and Hetty, because this is a young adult novel, so they can't have normal names. Hetty is a nickname for something. Maybe like Harriet. 
something like because Hetty is like an old timey name. Yeah, but Byatt. Byatt is a made up name. B y a t t. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's like one of those names. It's like not quite one name, but sort of two names. Well, okay, and then I kept reading Hetty is Betty and Byatt is Hyatt, like the hotel. <laughs> anyway, things are looking grim at the school. They are burning furniture for warmth because it's Maine. The Navy is sending them food, but it's never enough. They're all, like, starving. The island itself is kind of cool. Having never been to Maine myself, the furthest north that I have been is Chicago. It's basically exactly the rugged northeastern seashore and landscape that I've always imagined. There's even these, like, weird crabs that turn black when they die. But it's like they're special. They do that because they're rackster crabs. It ties into a plot point that I'm not going to give away. Okay. So they've kind of developed a system for taking care of themselves. There's a group of girls who keep watch at the fence line because the woods outside of the property have gone wild and animals will kill you. And there's also a group that goes down to the docks to get the delivery of food from the Navy. This is more important. So they're quarantined here because of the tox. And the tox remains a mystery for most of the book. All we know is that it comes in flare-ups, and the flare-ups cause extremely painful mutations. For example, one of Hetty's eyes is fused shut because of a mutation. And then Byatt has a second spine, but the bones are sharp, and they actually, like, split through her skin, and she almost bled out. But ended up surviving. Things like that. I think there's a girl with gills. Like, it's all pretty standard bodily mutations, like next door to body horror, but not quite there. Sure. Eventually, the mutations either kill the girls by, like, causing something that makes them bleed out or causes, like, a blockage in their throat and they can't breathe and they suffocate or something like that. Or they go insane and attack each other. So the only remaining adults are a teacher named Welch, I can't remember her first name, and the headmistress. And the tox has affected them differently. There's no mutations. They're just kind of like sickly and they have sores around their mouth, which is always something to avoid. Content warning. Also, the headmistress has given each girl a bullet. So if they feel their sanity starting to slip, they can peel it open and eat the gunpowder to die. Does that kill you like that? I don't know if it actually does or not. I should have looked that up. I mean, I can't imagine it's good for you, right? Yeah. But then I also feel like poisoning, like, let's say it's toxic. I feel like that would be a slow and not great death. They couldn't have just given them, like, cyanide capsules? Sure. (laughs) A boarding school just has those on hand. I mean, you never know. And supplies from the Navy are sparse, okay? (laughs) They're real sparse. The narrative switches back and forth between Byatt and Hetty. And shortly into the story, Byatt has a flare-up, a really bad one, and is taken away. And she promptly disappears from the infirmary. And that's when we start getting chapters from her viewpoint where she's at a research facility where people are trying to find a cure for the tox. Her chapters are pretty important with regards to the pot, so I can't really go into much detail there. It really just focuses on the work being done for the cure and then the havoc that she causes because, understandably, she's lashing out because of the circumstances. For example... She convinces a male nurse to take her for a walk outside, and while out there, she uses her secret weapon, her sexuality, to convince him to take his mask off, and then they kiss, which results in him getting the toxin dying. Hmm. Meanwhile, and actually this happens before Byatt disappears, 
Hetty is switched from the watch to the doc group, which is why I mentioned those two groups specifically. So she goes with a couple other girls and Welch to receive the shipment of supplies from the Navy. This causes some issues with Reese because she had been desperate to be put on dock shift because she's actually the daughter of the island's caretaker. And she has been desperate to try and go back to her house, which is on a different part of the island. Because remember, they stay inside the school grounds Mm -hmm. uh, to look for her father. But dock shift girls are the only ones that are allowed to leave the school property. So there's like some tension there. There's also like sapphic yearning everywhere. (laughs) And gentle listener. I am a cis gay man. But my favorite thing in the world is sapphic yearning (laughs) in a storyline. And I mean as like a side plot or something like that. I just, I don't know why. It just brings me a lot of joy. And this book is just like a few hundred pages of sapphic yearning with some like environmental horror thrown in. (laughs) It's true. I mean, you're always into those ships. Like when we watch shows and stuff. I will go down with this ship. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, getting back around to it. So on Hetty's first stock shift, she learns that a majority of the food is being thrown out every single time because Welch has decided that it's been tampered with. Hmm. And I don't want to give away the ending, which explains why. She's told that she isn't allowed to tell. And this is really upsetting to her because the girls are basically starving at the school. Like, lunch is, okay, let's go through these rations. Here's a package of jerky. Split this pack of jerky with your five friends. Yikes. You get more food tomorrow. Like that sort of thing. On the way back, they're chased by a mutant bobcat. And it's super harrowing because they have to split up and you never split the party. And along the way, Hetty finds a cooler with a vial of blood that's labeled Rax009. And I bring this up because it's linked to my biggest pet peeve with this book. And that is the plot holes. This book has more holes in its plot than a piece of lace. For example, we do eventually learn that the vial is blood taken from one of the Raxter girls, but only because we learn about other samples labeled the same. We don't know why there's a random cooler buried in the woods with a vial of blood in it. It's just there. Hmm. That's it. And there's a lot of shit like that throughout this book. Yeah. And I don't like unexplained things that are thrown in for a plot. I just, mm. anyway. Another scene that I want to mention really quick is basically completely unimportant with regards to plot, but probably my favorite scene. So Hetty comes down for breakfast one day and one of her new dock shift buddies is sitting with Reese. So she goes and she joins them. And the third dock shift girl comes over and sits down and Reese mutters, oh great, another one. And then, then, one of them opens their mouth to say something and Reese just flat out goes, we don't always have to talk. <laughs> and let me tell you, I felt so seen. <laughs> so seen. Because, gentle listener, I have no idea what impression you have of me. But I don't like talking to people that I don't know at all whatsoever. I have walked away while someone was in the middle of a word before because I just didn't want to be there anymore. So this scene, it made me feel seen. It made me feel represented. <laughs> it was lovely. I mean, yeah, that sounds like you. I'm a misanthropic curmudgeon. <laughs> I don't mind. I, 
I don't mind talking to people. I don't these days. I don't know if it's the quarantine or what, but I feel like these days I like less and less to be put into like forced conversation situations with people that I don't. Not people that I don't like people that I share no common ground with. I'll say that. Happens a good amount at my job. I'll just put it that way. Mine too. Patrons will get real chatty and I'm just like, ma'am, do you want your holds? <laughs> Please just tell me if you want your holds or not. Anyway, I don't really want to give away too many more specific plot points. Basically, Hetty and Reese, in an effort to find Byatt, end up discovering the true nature of the talks, as well as what's been done to keep it covered up. I will reveal, and I guess this is a pretty decent spoiler alert, that hormones, specifically the presence of estrogen, change how the talks affects people, which is why it killed the male nurse almost immediately, but the girls are surviving. Sure. The reason I feel okay explaining that is because there isn't really a good explanation about why this is the case. It's another plot hole. It's just like told to us and we're just meant to be like, okay, sure. Also, I want to talk about how I feel like there was a really missed opportunity here for the author to explore that through the eyes of the trans community. Hmm. Though I will admit that would have to be done with a very large amount of delicacy because all trans folks, even those who do not go on any sort of hormone therapy, are valid and should be respected and represented with respect. However, I feel like it's possible. And I feel like that was a really missed opportunity for the author. I feel like it could have been really deeply explored that way. But there's not a single trans character in this book, so trying to think in my head i don't literally nothing in my head comes when i try to think of uh trans representation in horror i would be all for it i just literally cannot think of any well no nope. I, I can't think of any positive trans representation in horror sleepaway camp you were thinking sleepaway camp no because sleep i cannot get into this conversation i have this conversation so often the murderer in sleepaway camp one is not trans okay that's that's just that's a fact yeah I think it does change later in the franchise because they do whatever. But, like, that is not a trans person. That is an emotionally damaged person who is forced to live as a different gender. That's a whole different situation. What I was actually thinking is Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs is trans, actually. Oh. But does not necessarily... Oh, you haven't seen Silence of the Lambs. Well, I have. But it was, like, (laughs) two weeks into my first relationship, and I was not paying attention to the movie. It's not the healthiest portrayal. He... She, I don't know. That character, I would describe that character as trans. The whole point of that character is that they're not comfortable in their body, so they're killing women to make a woman suit to be a woman. Like skinning them and stuff. That's why he wants them to put on lotion. Yes. Oh my God. Because he, he starves them to get the skin loose and has them put the lotion on. And then he like, is an expert sewer. I say he, I I actually, I don't even know what pronoun to use for them, but I really just don't know. Anyways, I'll try to use they as much as I can. I just don't know. And so then they're like an expert sewer and they're making like a, a woman's suit out of these women's skins. And so like, that's the whole point of it. And the iconic scene of him like dancing by himself and saying like, uh, would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. I'd fuck me so hard. It's like him full frontal nudity with his 
penis and balls tucked between his legs so you can't see it. Interesting. Yeah. So I would, to be honest, I do think that that character is in the spectrum of trans. I don't necessarily think you need like positive representation, like the villain can't be a trans person, but I don't know. I'll just, whatever. It is what it is. That's the only thing I can literally think of when it comes to any sort of trans representation. And to be clear, gentle listener, I don't think that Sleepaway Camp is trans representation either, which is why I thought of it as an example of a poor attempt at it. Yeah, I will never do Sleepaway Camp 1 on this show because, one, you've seen it. And, two, I just feel like I I literally talk about that movie constantly. I thought about doing the second one just to see because I haven't seen it. But I don't know. I don't want to get into that whole conversation. Like I said, I have it all the time on forums. So let's continue. Let's continue. We'll see how much of this makes the cut. I know. I feel like it's really boring, so I may end up cutting a lot of it. Anyway, all in all, I would give this three out of five crabs that turn black when you kill them. Uh, it, did I mention that that's what the crabs do? Yes. I can't, okay, good. Just making sure that wasn't completely out of context. Because when I wrote this part in my script, I had forgotten to mention it earlier and had to go back and find a, like, find a place to kind of shoehorn it in. He did. Awesome. Good. It was fun to read and it was entertaining, but there were also a lot of plot holes and, in my opinion, a lot of missed opportunities, as I mentioned. Also, I'm not going to give away the ending, but I'm going to tell you it's real abrupt and real shitty. Mm. I also read an interesting review written by a virologist, virologist, a woman who works with viruses, who works for the CDC, and she basically was like, there is no logic behind how this thing is spread. Hmm. And this does not work for me. And then she also had a lot of issues with the way that the government reacted to it. She was like, they would quarantine, but they wouldn't do some of the other weird stuff that they did and all kinds of weird stuff. That said, I acknowledge, and also this, this virologist did as well, that it's YA horror so we should give them some leeway with accurate representation of, like, the government and even the way that the virus spreads. Yeah, you, I mean, you can only expect so much from, from books. You have to give books a little bit of leeway with pretty much everything. That's how I feel when I see or, like, watch anything that involves, like, the legal field. Because I feel like you can only expect so much. Not everybody is going to be, like... I throw this reference out because I know you love it. Not everyone is like a Deborah Harkness, you know, like you can't become an expert on everything just because you're writing a book on it. I mean, you could, but people don't need to. Oh, my God. I love Deborah Harkness. Gentle listener, I do not only read horror and Deborah Harkness's books are literally my favorite book series ever of all time. Anyway, I we own this is not a Deborah Harkness podcast, but I could do one easily, (laughs) easily. But I will refrain from going down that road. Be our next, our new podcast, Discovery of Bitches. God. <laughs> well, if you were in Wilder Girls, well, I I mean, I know you're saying it kills guys easier, but it's like, would you die in it? Yeah, I mean, 100%. I would. If, let's just assume I maintain my career and I am the librarian at this school, like, I would die. Literally every, like... I don't know. There aren't there's the distinct lack of trans characters. So I guess I can just say every male character, but every like AMAB character dies. That's just how it works. Also, the gender binary is a social construct. Anyway, would you die in Jennifer's body? 
I would say I would have like a 50-50 chance. She does tend to kill people that she seduces. And I'm like, could Megan Fox seduce me? Maybe. She's pretty sultry in this. But she doesn't kill, like not a lot of people get killed. It's not like a spree. So I would say that there's like, and she does prefer killing boys. So maybe, you know, 50-50 chance I'd give myself. I don't think I would die in Jennifer's body. I know we don't normally comment on each other's <laughs> movies, books, whatever. But you talk about, like, could she seduce me? I mean, I once had a stripper compliment my ass, and my reaction was literally, thanks, girl. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't necessarily know that I would really want to go alone into the woods with her, which tends to be her mo. So that I may be able to save with that, like save myself with that. Anyway. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.